0: We're going to turn back to that passage of Scripture that we read this morning in Hebrews chapter 1. This morning in our study, we come to the next of the phrases in the first three verses that we've been considering over the last several times we've been together. The last time we were together, we finished verse 2 with the phrase, By whom also he made the world's not only dealing with Christ as the one that created the material world but also the changes that the world underwent since that day of creation so we finished that the last time we were we were together and this morning we're going to start verse 3 and we're going to consider who being the brightness of his glory who being the brightness of his glory. But before we do, let's just bow in a word of prayer. Our Father, we come now to the all-important time of the service, the preaching of the gospel of Christ. And Father, we thank Thee that even from a passage and a phrase such as this, that we can draw from it the gospel, that we can glory in not only the creating power of our Savior but also the redemptive power of our Savior as well. Oh, Father, we're thankful that the one that we call our Savior is indeed the brightness of the very glory of God. And so, Father, help us to be careful about what we say in dealing with the person and work of Christ. But, Lord, nonetheless, help us to rejoice in the truth that we find contained in the Word of God. Help us, Lord, as we study this passage today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This section, this phrase that we're considering this morning as it's found in verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory, deals with one of the most frequent subjects uh, that you'll find in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament scriptures, that being the glory of God. Now, when we talk about the glory of God, of God, we are really talking about two different aspects of glory, Uh, and those two aspects are usually in focus when we use this term. Uh, Obviously, the first of those aspects is the actual light and the brilliance that often accompanies an appearance or a glimpse of God himself. You'll find this more often in the Old Testament scriptures where the Lord would appear to his people in this way. Think of Exodus chapter 33 where Moses said to the Lord, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And the verses that follow talk about how the Lord couldn't show Moses his full glory. Uh, The glory that Moses ended up seeing was the, the hind parts of the Lord as he passed by. Such was the The majesty of the glory of the Lord. And not only that, but the Lord actually had to put his hand over Moses to shield him from the brightness of the glory of God. And the glory that Moses ended up seeing was as the Lord withdrew his hand as the Lord had already passed by. Such was the glory that appeared to Moses on that day. Then, in the very next chapter... In Exodus chapter 34, the Lord said to Moses, beginning in verse 27, Write thou these words, for after the tenor of these words I have made a covenant with thee and with Israel. And the scripture says he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He did neither eat bread nor drink water. And he wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Okay, these were the, this is how the Ten Commandments was being given to the children of Israel once again. Uh, it was given the first time Moses broke those tablets. This is Exodus chapter 34. In verse 29, it says right after that, And it came to pass when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony in Moses' hand, and when he came down from the mount that Moses wist not, He didn't know. That's just an old English way of saying he didn't know. He had no idea that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. And when Aaron and the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come nigh nigh him. And Moses called them, and Aaron and the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. And afterward all the children of Israel came nigh, and he gave them a commandment that all, all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. Until Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. He put a veil on his face. But when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he took off the veil, took the veil off until he came out. And he came out and spake to the children of Israel that which was commanded. And the, children, and the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. And Moses put the veil upon his face again until he went in to speak with them. That's just a reflected glory. The glory that Moses had upon his face because he was face to face with the Lord for 40 days. So much so that they had to veil his face. They couldn't speak with, they couldn't look at Moses' face unveiled. Such was the glory that was showing uh, simply because he was with the Lord. Uh, It's interesting. This is one of the two passages in the Old Testament that talks about the need for a veil. A veil to to shield from glory. The other being the veil of the temple or or the veil of the tabernacle. One of these days, I'm going to write a a paper about the head covering. Uh, In our our denomination, we uh, require for women who are members to cover their head. Uh, It's actually taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And among those that believe that is still pertinent today, uh, there's differing, differing opinion as to exactly how that should be. Some believe that just something on top of the head... Uh, is accepted. Some believe that the whole entire head needs to be veiled um, from the, the hair on down. I, I find it very interesting that the word for veil in First Corinthians chapter 11, uh, or the word for covering, is the word for veil. And the woman's hair in that chapter is actually said to be her glory. So my own interpretation, my own take on it, and again, this is not definitive uh, from the denomination, but I, I think it's actually more of a hair covering than a head covering. Uh, And it fits very nicely with the two other times you find in the scripture where a veil was needed. It's the same exact word, I mean, the same idea. One's Greek and one's Hebrew. But um, both other times you find a veil needed because of glory. The entirety of the glory was veiled. Not only was it, do we know that to be the case, but if any of it was showing, the children of Israel couldn't even look upon that glory. So you can study it for yourself. Like I said, one of these times, I'm probably going to write a paper on it and probably get myself in trouble with a lot of people in the denomination. But I don't think it's by coincidence that the word "veil" is used when we're talking about head covering in First Corinthians chapter 11. A veil was needed. Such was the brightness of the reflected glory that was seen in Moses' face. And so the actual light the brilliance that came from God when He appeared to men. That is one use of the word glory. But then the other use is the glory of His attributes or the glory of His character. We're not talking about the physical light that appears here. We're talking about the word glory applying to who the Lord is. And you'll find that this is One of the ways that it's used in Psalms, it's it's found more often in Psalms. Uh, The glory, the brightness is also found. But you'll find many different references in the Psalms that talk about God's glory. And it's talking about his character. It's not talking about the brightness of of his image. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. The handiwork is the glory. That's the, the symbolism. that's the idea here in Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. Well, what is the glory of God? The firmament showeth His handiwork, the work of creation. There you're not dealing with the brightness of His majesty. You're dealing with His work. Psalm 24, verse 7. Lift up, lift up your heads, O ye gates. And be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. The glory connected with his strength and his might in battle, his conquests. He's a glorious king. We would use the same language to talk about a king that that accomplished great things in his day, that he was a glorious king. Well, that's the idea here. In his accomplishments, the Lord is a king of glory, the king of glory. And then psalm eighty five verse nine, surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Here we're not talking about the that that the brightness of God's glory was in throughout the land all the time, those things connected with salvation became the basis for the glory dwelling in the land. Okay, so I say that to say that when we talk about God's glory, we're not just talking about the, the brightness that, that is in His appearance. That very often in the Scriptures, the glory of God is actually talking about who He is and what He's doing on the earth as well. The passage that we deal with this morning uh, deals obviously in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it deals with Christ. And of Christ, it says, who being the brightness of his glory. The brightness of his glory. Now, this obviously, the reference to the glory of God, is being applied directly to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, what what is it that this passage is telling us concerning this one that we call our Savior. I want to just take a few moments today to consider two things. We're going to spend a little bit of time under under each of these, but uh, two things that deal with Christ, the brightness of the glory of God. Christ, the brightness of the glory of God. One of these weekends... Are these these Sabbath days that we are, we're meeting together, we're going to start going through uh, what is one of the greatest ways that Christ is shown in the Old Testament. You may not have much of a history of being in churches that preach Christ from the Old Testament, right? We, we, we can go to the New Testament. We can consider the epistles, we consider the Gospels, it's, it's obvious that you can preach Christ from that section of the Word of God. But as we saw the last time we were gathered together, uh, considering the, the way in which Christ is revealed in the Old Testament as well, one of the greatest ways He's revealed in the Old Testament is through types. And there was a, a two-volume set written many years ago, I mentioned this uh, one of the Sundays I was here, Edward Taylor upon the types of the Old Testament. And the very first of his chapters in his books upon the types of the Old Testament is Christ, the glory of all types. Christ is the glory of all types. And there's a quote here. This just shows how it applies to the Lord Jesus Christ. The great work of divine grace in the dispensation of the gospel is to bring persons out of a state of sin and, and misery and unto Jesus Christ. In order hereunto, it labors us to disaffect them with sin as the most accursedly ugly thing, and to affect them with the excellency and loveliness of Jesus Christ. Among the many methods attended on, By the Spirit of God to set before us the loveliness of the Lord Jesus Christ is this one. He hath singled out certain of the choicest things in the whole creation by their excellency to paint out some of the excellency of Christ and that metaphorically in the parables as chiefly in the New Testament as the pearl of great price in prophecies variously variously shining with his excellence and in types most gorgeously laid down before us the glory of all, which is but a, sharp, a dark shadow of his excellency. Now that this glory of Christ might smite its enamoring rays upon our affections to draw us out thereby to Christ, I am come to lay open. There's not a more, <laughs> there's not a more enticing and exciting way to present the types to the saint than what he just said. The the, the the purpose, the divine purpose in the Old Testament, in the types, is to show the glory of Christ. And so it isn't just the New Testament scriptures. It's the Old Testament scriptures. Yes, in a different type of a, an administration, or if you want to use the word dispensation, it's, that's a word that's gotten twisted in our day. It's a perfectly fine way to talk about how God dealt with sinners in the Old Testament. It was a different administration because Christ hadn't come yet. So much of the gospel that you would see in the Old Testament is types, it's shadows, it's pictures, it's people, right? It's people, the priest. The priest pictures Christ, the kings. Uh, That's how Christ was, was shown in the Old Testament scripture. But the point is that even in the Old Testament where... You have to do digging and go deeper to draw Christ out in this, in this picture form as he's set forth in shadows and not the clear uh, doctrine statements that you find in the epistles. Even in that section of the word, uh, when you read the, the scriptures the way God designs the scriptures to be read, Christ in all of his glory is to be seen. And so, I just want to, I want to focus on two things today in dealing with Christ uh, being the brightness of the glory of God. And, and in essence, they're, they're the, same, the same points that we made in the introduction, just defining the word glory. So, the first thing we see from the scriptures is the glorious, visible splendor of God is seen in Christ. The glorious, visible splendor of God is seen in Christ, who being the brightness of his glory. The Greek word for brightness is literally to send forth brightness or light. It also has the prefix uh, attached to it that is our English word from. Okay, so literally the brightness from or the light from. In this we see the, the way that the Lord is being described Here, it's it's the same word it's used in Second Corinthians chapter four verse four. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Right, the gospel is a is a a message of hope. It's a message that preaches deliverance from sin. Uh, The imputation of righteousness, the great doctrines that we have contained in the gospel, the the imagery that Paul's using in that passage is saying it's shining to them, right? The the gospel is the brightness, but then the shining of that is the preaching of that brightness, the preaching of the gospel. There isn't really a better analogy to describe what Paul's saying here in, in our passage in Hebrews 1, than that which God has already given to us that we see every day in the sun. That we go outside, we see the sun. In in his commentary on Hebrews from back in the 1600s, Dr. Gage drew some imagery and analogy from the sun and the brightness that's connected with the sun that I thought was very interesting. He has seven different ways that... The sun itself and the brightness that comes from the sun in many ways reflects the brightness of God and how that's displayed for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, the brightness issuing from the sun is the same nature as the sun itself. The second thing he says, it's of long continuance as the sun. Never was the sun without the brightness of it. The third thing he says is the brightness cannot be separated from the sun. The sun may as well be made no sun, as have the brightness thereof severed from it. This brightness, fourth of all, though from the sun, is not the sun itself. Fifth, the sun and the brightness are distinct from each other. The one is not the other. Sixth, all the glory of the sun is this brightness. And then seven, the light which the sun giveth the world... Is by this brightness. Thus, the father. Or thus, the son is no wit inferior. And this is his quote: "Is no wit inferior to the father, but every way his equal. He was brightness, the brightness of his father. Yea, also the brightness of his father's glory. Whatever excellency soever was in the father, the same likewise was in the son, and that in the most transplendent manner." Glory sets out excellency. Brightness of glory, the excellency of excellency. A.W. Pink goes on to describe uh, this, this imagery. That which is in view in this third item of our passage so far transcends the grasp of the finite mind that it is impossible to give it adequate expression in words. Christ is the irradiation of God's glory. The mediator's relation to the Godhead is like that of the rays to the sun itself. We may conceive of the sun in the firmament, yet shining not. Were there no rays, we should not see the sun. So apart from Christ, the brightness of God's glory could not be perceived by us. Without Christ, man is in the dark. Utterly in the dark concerning God, it is in Christ that God is revealed. Christ is the revelation of God. Christ is the brightness of the Lord. Now, even in his own time upon the earth, in the, in the physical, literal sense of the brightness of the splendor of the Lord, there were times where man was given a glimpse That this was just not any man walking the face of the earth. There was something unique about this one Jesus of Nazareth. Matthew chapter 17 verses 1 and 2 then. And after six days Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John his brother. And bringeth them up into an high mountain apart. And he was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun. And his raiment was white as the light. The Lord in his transfiguration, pulls back the veil, pulls back what man could not see. You looked at Christ, you saw a man, bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh. But for those three that were with him, Peter, James, and John, they saw something of the glory and the splendor of Jesus Christ in his person. And then John, in his gospel, talks about the glory of, ...that Christ has has always had as the second person of the Trinity. In dealing with the rejection of the gospel among the Jews... ...he says in John chapter 12... "...but though he had done so many miracles among them... ...yet they believed not on him... ...that the saying of Isaiah, the prophet might be fulfilled... ...which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report?" He's quoting here from Isaiah chapter 6... "...and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed?" The very thing that Isaiah said back in his day is being applied to the hardness of heart among the Jews. They were rejecting Christ. They were rejecting the gospel. John says, Isaiah wrote about this. He said this would take place. Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah saith again, he hath blinded their eyes and hath hardened their heart, and they should not see, lest they... Uh, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. That's, that's another reference in Isaiah's writings, again being applied to the rejection of the gospel among the Jews. But the last, of that, the last verse of that section, John says, These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spoke of him. You go back to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah sees the Lord, Jehovah, high and lifted up, his train filling the temple. Holy, 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 the angels are crying, Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of your glory. This was the image that Isaiah saw. Glory, splendor, majesty. John takes that passage, dealing with the rejection of the gospel, and applies the person that gave that message in all of his splendor and all of his glory, specifically to Christ. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spake of him. The, the brilliant splendor, the majesty that is seen in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, is seen, uh, was seen in, in, in Isaiah chapter 6 uh, and, and that's applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. So in dealing with this great this great majesty, this great excellence of the Lord uh, in dealing with His visible splendor. Uh, there are, are several things that we've considered. The light of the sun, the brightness of the sun. There's, this, there's a, a distinctness. doesn't mean that they're the same person. The Father has the brightness. Uh, the Lord also has the brightness as well. But this work that uh, continues... Uh, that the Lord then goes on uh, to, to focus upon. It isn't just the brightness of His glory, but you see secondly here in dealing with the Lord Jesus Christ, the glory of God is seen in the work of Jesus Christ. It isn't just His majesty and His brightness and His glory, uh, the, uh, the application of the Word, especially as it's presented for us in the New Testament, it isn't the, the, the brightness and the majesty. You see that at, at dif- different times in the Lord's ministry. You see that when he appeared uh, to Paul the apostle, right? There are times where the Lord appears in his brightness and he appears in, in, in that majesty. But the emphasis that you find in the word of God, in the New Testament, in dealing with the Lord Jesus Christ is the glory of God that's seen In the work of Christ. And that's the second thing. Not just the brightness of His glory. But the glory in His attributes. And in His majesty. When we talk about the miracles of Christ. When we talk about those things that are generally viewed as supernatural. Should we say that the miracles themselves are proof that the Lord is the second person of the Trinity? When the Lord made turned water into wine when the Lord raised Lazarus from the dead. Those miracles, are they the proof that he is the second person of the Trinity? Most people would say yes, but I actually would, would argue with that. I believe that most of the miracles that the Lord Jesus Christ did, it wasn't proof in itself that he was the second person of the Trinity. You say, well, why do you say that? Because most of the miracles that Christ did were done by other men. The same exact type of thing were done by other men. Maybe not turning water into wine, but raising the dead. You look at at the tomb of Lazarus, right? And Christ says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus, he that is bound, he was all wrapped up, came forth. So much so that the Lord had to say, loose him and let him go. So the Lord gives this word, Lazarus, come forth, I don't even know how he would have come out of the tomb. Just, just came out, levitated. I don't know how. However, he came out because he couldn't walk. He was wrapped, bound. The Lord says, "Loose him and let him go." That has to be an indication that he's the second person of the Trinity, right? Well, is it any more of an indication that he is God than when Paul the apostle raises someone that's dead? or Elijah raises someone that's dead. The miracles that Christ did were not necessarily a proof that he was the second person of the Trinity. What they were a proof is that as the Son of Man, he was filled with the power of the Holy Ghost in his ministry. That the Spirit of God came upon Christ without measure. And that as the Redeemer... As the mediator, the one representing his people before the Lord, as a man, he was filled with the power of the Holy Ghost. Now, there are, uh, there are some miracles that you can say that, that maybe separated him. I mean, obviously, the Scripture itself says that it was never said that anyone could open the eyes of one born blind. But I would still say... That Christ in the performing of that miracle was functioning as our redeemer, our mediator. Filled with the power of the Holy Ghost. And so it's, it's just something to consider. That the miracles of Christ in themselves, while it was done by the power of God, is not an indication that he's the second person of the Trinity. Well then, are there works that Christ does that are an indication that, That this is not just a man, but that this is the second person of the Trinity. Yes, there is. Two things. One, the forgiveness of sins. Here's the same one who is filled with the power of the Holy Ghost to turn water into wine, to raise the dead, to heal the sick. And yet this one who is doing these things claimed the greatest work, which is... He forgave sins. He forgave sins. Luke chapter 7, verse 48 to 50. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. This, this is only applied to God. No man has the power to forgive sins. You can declare to somebody that their sins are forgiven when they come to Christ, but that's based upon what the promises are in the Word of God. I can, I can tell you on God's authority that your sins are forgiven the moment you come to Christ, but I do not have the power to forgive sins. Luke chapter 5, verse 20, and when he saw their faith, this was the, the faith of the one bringing the, the one sick of the palsy, Through the roof, when he saw their faith, he said unto them, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? For all the, the confusion and the error that you see from the Pharisees from time to time, they were spot on with that, that statement. Who can forgive sins but God alone? All their errors, they were right on that. But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answering said unto them, what reason ye in your hearts, whether it is easier to say thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say rise up and walk? He healed the man sick of the palsy, or he's he's about to, which is easier. Both require divine... Power both require the moving of God. Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or is it easier to say rise up and walk? But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. That you might know that the Son of Man is unlike anyone else that the world has ever seen. Then it says, he said to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, arise, take up thy couch and go into thine house. And immediately he rose up before them and took... Up that whereon he lay and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed and they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. So that's an interesting way to end that narrative. Strange things today. You you probably could have said that about the ministry of Christ every day that he was on the earth every day that he was on the earth he hath done all things well heals the sick raises the dead but this was never mentioned by anyone that descended from Adam and Eve never could a man say thy sins be forgiven thee and then Christ knew what they were thinking He knew the conclusion they were coming to, and instead of backing down, he actually confirmed what he said by the healing of the one sick of the palsy. I say, the glory of God is seen in the work of Christ, in the forgiveness of sins. Him hath God exalted with his right hand, Acts chapter 5, to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Acts 13, 38. Be it known therefore unto you men and brethren that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Acts chapter 26, verse 18. To open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Three verses from the book of Acts. The basis of their preaching was that Christ had the power to forgive sins. And preaching in His name, they're preaching the forgiveness of sins. I say the glory of God is seen in the works of Christ. The same way the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth His handiwork, the glory of God is seen in creation. I say the glory of Christ, who is the brightness of God's glory, is seen in In that he can forgive sins. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness or the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Colossians chapter 1, verse 14, something very similar. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. How how is this great work accomplished? The forgiveness of sins to sinners. It's the greatest theme. It's the greatest of all glory. You talk about the glorious majesty of God. It's seen in its most brilliant splendor in the forgiveness of sins and the reconciliation of sinners to the Father. That's where the brightness of the glory, the splendor of the glory of of God in His actions is seen. And it's seen in the work of Jesus Christ. Two things that Christ has done that show this glorious splendor. You, you can use the general term. Forgiveness of sins. But the, the scripture actually gets more specific. What is it that sinners need? That, that that has to happen. In order for them to be reconciled to God. That Christ has done. He's done this work. The first is that Christ had to keep the law for us. There is no reconciliation to God. There is no blessing that the lord can give upon his people without a perfect legal obedience god has given his law in the scriptures that law is life keep that law and live you break that law it's sin the wages of sin is death keeping the law is life it's required in the one who is reconciling sinners to the Father, that He keep the law for them. Oh, The the greatest way, one of the great ways that Christ is is set forth in this capacity is the work of the priest. The the one who bears the names of the children of Israel before the Father. That is Christ our Savior. He He is functioning as our representative. The high priest confessed the sins of the people, and he went in to make, to, to make reconciliation and atonement for their sins. That's the way Christ is set forth in the Old Testament Scriptures. So does it surprise us then that when we come to the, to the New Testament where the clear doctrine is set forth, that Christ is set forth as the one who keeps the law for us? He's the one that, that reconciles us to God through his obedience to the law? The very thing that God commands of us. Not that we just don't break the law, but that we need to actively keep it. It's one thing to not break a law. It's another thing to keep a law. The Lord not only demands that we don't break the law, but we have to have a perfect obedience. He has to look at sinners and say, they have kept my law. Not one of us can do it. Not one of us can do it. You look in the mirror and you're honest with yourself. You read the scripture. See what the Lord says about your nature and my nature. It's one of the greatest ways that I was convinced that the Bible is the word of God. That a book could be written thousands of years ago and when you read passages like Romans 1, Romans 2, Romans 3, it's describing my nature. And and when you read that, it's, it's such a... It's such a uh, a penetrating description of what we are before the Lord. We've broken the law. Christ, as our representative, the one who in this great, the greatest work, showing forth his glory, kept the law for us. Romans 5, verse 18. Therefore, as by the offense of one, that's Adam, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men to justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. The the forgiveness of sins and the removal of sins, we'll get to it in in a second. But here, there's, there's something more that's being shown. That God requires a righteousness... He requires an obedience to the law. Christ has done that for us. Adam had that offered to him. He failed. So by the obedience of one, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, shall many be made righteous. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. And then he goes and gives verse 21, which is in many ways maybe the, one of the greatest statements talking about the justification of sinners through the work of Christ. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I say that the glory of God that is seen in actions, in the attributes, the activities. There's no, there's no greater way that that glory is manifest in the scriptures than the glory that is given to Christ as the one who reconciles God's people to the Father. The only way we can be reconciled is by a perfect legal obedience. When Christ came to John the Baptist to be baptized, John the Baptist... Can you imagine, can you imagine baptizing the Son of God? Can you imagine being asked to do that? So what's the first thing John says? I, I, I have need to be baptized of you. I know who you are. I know what you've come into this world to accomplish. Christ, in response to that, he didn't tell him you're wrong. He said, suffer it to be so now to fulfill all righteousness. Christ's baptism was him as our representative. Laboring under the same requirements of the law that are required of you and me. Christ did not rebuke John saying, no, no, you, you've got it all wrong. You're right as to who I am. But John, you're mis, mis, misapplying what needs to happen. Part of who I am requires that I come under the law. Allow it to be so. Suffer it to be so now to fulfill all righteousness. I say the, 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 the glory of the Redeemer is seen in his righteous obedience for sinners. You need to have a righteous obedience in order to be accepted before God. That has been provided by one man. Jesus Christ. The same one that John, uh, Peter, James, and John on the trans, Mount of Transfiguration saw when, his, when the veil was pulled back and the brightness and the splendor of the second person of the Trinity shone forth. I say just as bright is this glory that Christ is our righteousness. He kept the law for us. His obedience to the law. And then his sacrifice for sin. His sacrifice for sin. When we talk about the work of Christ, we often talk about the atonement that was that was made upon the cross. Christ himself was clear. He came into the world to go to Jerusalem. When when he was born, what was the the word of the angels, uh, the angel to his to his mother? Thou shalt call his name Jesus, or to, to his parents, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people, from their sins. It isn't just that Christ kept the law for us. Because the other problem we have is that we've broken it. We've sinned. The punishment of breaking of the law is death. The the wages of sin is death. Romans 3. Christ dealt with our active disobedience. Our active breaking of the law that requires God to condemn us. It isn't just that God can't give us life because we haven't kept and and, and manufactured and earned a righteousness. God is required to give us death because we've broken the law. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's you and me. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God hath set forth, the very one who has to condemn sin and send sinners to hell, this is said of him, whom God hath set forth. The very one that must condemn sinners to an eternity in hell is the one who has set forth his son. Don't you see the, the, the majesty and the glory of God? Not only Sending Christ into the world, but making it clear, this is the answer. Do do you not understand how that God is obligated, by His very nature, who He is, to punish sin, to condemn sin? The very one who condemns sin is the one who has set forth Christ to be the Savior whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, a a, a one who removes anger. God is saying, I'm angry. But God is saying, here's the one that will remove my anger toward you. The same word is the Old Testament word for mercy seat. When God met with Israel, he met with them above the mercy seat, but the blood of the sacrifice had to be sprinkled. God would not meet with them. Unless the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled upon the mercy seat. In that picture, in that, in that, that, that way that's described in the Old Testament, Paul makes it very clear right here. That the whole point of commanding Israel to, to perform these sacrifices was to show what Christ would do. Whom God has set forth to be a removal of wrath through faith in His blood. To declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness. That he might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. First Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Who his own self bear our sins and his own body on the tree. That we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed, for ye were as sheep going astray, but now but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. and then Galatians chapter three, another clear reminder to us that Christ bore the sins of his people in order to reconcile them to God, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written cursed. Is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. If you can't keep the law of God perfectly, you're cursed. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident. For the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. If you're going to keep the law, it's because of your own obedience. No faith is required. There's no need to trust anything if you're trying to get to heaven and trying to please God by the keeping of the law. That's what Paul means when he says that. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. Being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Most of the time... When you read of Christ being the brightness of God's glory. You understand that to be this. The radiance. That glory. And that's true. By writing that and understanding that. It's telling us that he is of the divine essence. He is the second person of the Trinity. Just as much Jehovah as the Father. But what's often missed is the the glory that's associated with action. And in these two ways, becoming a righteousness for His people, keeping the law for us, and then going to the cross to shed His blood, becoming a curse for us, hanging upon the tree. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Think in your minds what condescension that the second person of the Trinity would even take our nature... And come into this world. That it would even be said. That there is one among us. Who is Emmanuel. God with us. It, the, the very thought of that happening. That God would condescend just to do that. Is amazing. But then to go the step further. And say not only am I going to come and take their nature. But I am going to put myself under every indication and evidence of the wrath and anger that God has toward them in order to then take that people and bring them to the father and say behold I and the children that God hath given me oh what a, what a condescension it would be just to take our nature but then to suffer to suffer at the hands of the very ones that he was that he created In order to redeem sinful men and women back unto the Father. It's the greatest manifestation of the glory of God. That is the glory of Christ. So yes, He is the brightness of God's glory in His deity. But never lose sight of the fact that by keeping the law for us, and offering up himself a sacrifice to satisfy God's anger for us in order to reconcile us to the Father, that is Christ in all of his glory. And so I trust that these thoughts today will encourage you. I know that just being reminded of the beauty of Christ in the gospel uh, is, 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 is a thrill to the heart to consider that Christ has done all of these things for us. I trust that these thoughts will encourage you today and get your eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Our Father, we are thankful this day that we not only serve a God who is glorious in His splendor, but we serve a God who took to Himself human flesh to come into this world to do everything that was necessary in order to bring me back unto Thee. Father, we thank Thee that we are reminded that that the Lord has done great things for us, whereof we are glad. Father, we glory in Him today. There is no place for us to glory There is no glorying in the flesh. There's no glorying in our obedience. There's no glorying in anything that we can offer to thee. Like Abel of old, we must bring the the first of the flock and offer that as the sacrifice. We, We must bring the blood of the sacrifice and confess we can't bring the fruit of the ground and offering to thee. Oh, we must be reconciled to thee by the blood of the lamb. And so, Father, we thank thee that in doing so, we now can see in the message of the gospel the greatest manifestation of the glory of God as it's seen in Christ. Father, if we're in Christ today, there's no better place to be. Father, we pray for those that may be unsaved, that know not where they are before thee. Lord, we pray that Christ has been set forth to them in clarity, that they would understand that everything that God requires of sinners has been met in the work of Christ. Oh, Father, write thy word upon our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close our service by standing and singing hymn number 278, How Can It Be? How Can It Be? And we'll stand and sing all three verses.